that is listening to the opening song is doing this right now because when I recorded that, I definitely recorded it like literally like this. Like my head was the metronome. And uh, I think I even recorded it standing up. That's why you can hear the guitar playing is a little sloppy. And I hit that. That's just from standing up because I just playing live and breaking stuff all over the world. But that being said, I'm no longer doing that. I'm doing this. Dig it. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Pop Life. A new TIR Presents show where we're going to take a deep, more fun dive into different aspects of pop culture, movies, and of course, something I spent a long time doing, music. Sometimes we'll be joined by my co-host and good friend, who some of you might remember from the recent Woodstock 99 episode, Pasqual, Pasqual Romero, um, who has a storied history in music and the film industry as well. He was in bands like uh, In This Moment, uh, Pathology, Fear Factory, you know, a pretty long list of, of bands that uh, Pasquale was in. He's in a really great uh, death metal band with his wife. His wife does uh, some amazing vocals, Devil's Throne. Um, don't forget, if you like what you're seeing or hearing, please hit like, subscribe, and that notification bell so you know whenever we go live, like I always say on the main show, we are constantly adding new shows like this to the channel. So hit the bell so you can stay notified. Quickly, before I bring in our guests, I have to remind you guys that we're, be <laughs> that we're going to be doing our first ever live show, October 23rd. Los Angeles, California at the Terragram Ballroom. Give them a revolution. Ben Burge from Give Them Mark. Dave and Matt from Left Reckoning. Uh, and a slew of special guests. I was actually on doing a pre-record with one of the guests last night until the wee hours of the morning for him. Derek Varn. You know, we were having a music conversation and dovetailed into a political conversation. That got deep into a philosophical conversation, but deeper into a political conversation and definitely a music is two and a half hours. It's me and Derek Martin. So two old guys talking about old guy stuff. So um, and and pontificating on the state of, of uh, electoral politics, surprisingly, towards the end. And it was a, it ended kind of dark. It was a bleak ending to the show. I don't know how Derek's going to edit it. I don't know if he's going to take that bleakness out, but it's barn, so I doubt it. Now, before we bring in the guest of honor, I want to play you guys uh, a video that he sent me. Our guest today, uh, I met him through one of our previous guests, Daniel Tut. And our guest, uh, Billy Bunton, is an animator and was a former political commentator on CNN. And I saw his work and I was like, oh yeah, we gotta, we gotta get this brother on the show. So check this out before I bring in the guest and we have our deep dive conversation. What's going on, y'all? My name is Billy, and you are watching the very first episode of my new show, How Billy Season. How Billy Season. Nice, right? 
For those of you who don't know me, I'm an animator, a writer, and a visual effects artist from Brooklyn, New York, and I've spent the last 20 years working with grassroots activists and congresspeople, artists and journalists, grappling with this one question, what the fuck is going on? And more importantly, you know, how can I make it better? I guess that's two questions. Now, I recently decided to leave a pretty sweet job as an editor at CNN because I wanted to do other things, including helping y'all at home understand the importance of modern media literacy. There's so much information and misinformation coming out from every direction. Media literacy is the single most important tool we have to protect ourselves and maybe, just maybe, pull us back from the brink. Today, I'm focusing on the elite cable news brands. Why? Because they dominate our collective understanding. Right? Right? They lead the national discourse, and they have, have immense power to manufacture reality. So let me back up. There's this book called Manufacturing Consent, which was written by Edward Herman and Noam Chomsky back in 1988. Basically, it outlines how even in a supposedly democratic country like the U.S., private mass media companies reliably end up contorting truth in order to produce propaganda for those in power. The book is over. Uh. You had me at propaganda for those in power. He is a, he was a political commentator uh, on CNN. And like he says, he does help out and work with grassroots organizations. He is Billy Bunton. Hey. What up, Jason? Can I just correct? I was not actually a political commentator. I did. A, I was an editor producer there just to be. Oh, so that's so you were in charge of manufacturing the consent. <laughs> we coming for you, nigga. <laughs> man, I was back there. Yeah, I edited the stuff, man. <laughs> you, you was back there going, hmm, hmm. we're gonna make it look like Obama drank the water. <laughs> Cut crazy. right there. Beautiful. <laughs> His lips are wet. We got it. We got it. We did it again. Were you in the room? What the? <laughs> good. Not bad. <laughs> and that's when that you know one tear went down your cheek, and then it was like a a, a Grisham novel where the the <laughs> lawyer had to realize that he was on the wrong side of justice. That's right. That's right. You were well, clearly there. You know how it goes down. <laughs> Anyone? Look, adults have a story arc. And I don't know too many people that were just born perfect leftists, right? Mm. <laughs> we we get here uh, in various ways. Even my co-hosts uh, got here through black nationalism. Um, so we we get here through through various journeys, and it's um, silly to judge people on how they got here. You know, it's the fact that you're here. That being said. How did you get here? You know, when you go from working for the man, you know, so to speak, mm. and, and let me just let me stop teasing from that point. When you go to having a decent job <laughs> where there's certain accoutrement that, that is at mm. this job, right? You, you get given the like got benefits, <laughs> depending on who you are, you're getting free computers and stuff. And, you know, I, I, I uh, worked in tech for a minute. Uh, doing contract work for different silly stuff, but wow. definitely you walk in the door. Here's your laptop, you know. Yeah. Oh, look, we have a budget for all this free stuff. It's nice. You hungry? <laughs> <laughs> Micro kitchen every floor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
yeah. it's nice, man. Oh man. So how did so, I get so tell me so tell me like where are you from? Yeah. Where are you from? Man, where am I from? Um let's see, I grew up in Brooklyn, New York, but I was born in the Caribbean in Guadeloupe, very small island, not too far from Antigua, Haiti, French Caribbean, so but grew up in Brooklyn, New York. Um and then like eighteen, went to college at Stony Brook. Um, ended up in D.C. for polit- so politics. So, you know, how I got from CNN to here. Well, well uh, first of all, how did you get from Brooklyn to D.C.? Was it school? You said Stony Brook. So yeah. were you studying journalism in Stony Brook? No, I was a political science major and played football at Stony Brook. So those were my life right there. Um, I didn't know you that. You actually I- went to class. And I went to class, yeah. Actually, you know what's so funny? I went to class because you had to because, you know, the <laughs> – requirements on the grades you know what I mean but mm-hmm. um, and that was a good thing but um you know there was an internship for the congressman which this is the first district of New York in Long Island and oh, wow. um, you know I was a political science major but I, I didn't really think for like I thought I'd be playing in the NFL like those were my aspirations and Got you. I wasn't I wasn't totally like an academic person at that point but my, my friend was persistent he was like yo why haven't you applied for that internship you know you're a political science this is perfect why haven't you applied Three, four times. I'd say the fifth time I did it, mm-hmm. and I just spent my entire junior and senior year being uh, uh, an intern in that office, uh, which then, when the opportunity arose, he gave me the opportunity to come to D.C., and so that, you know, changed a lot of things. So you come to D.C., and you're in uh, – D.C. is like L.A. for politicos, in my opinion. Sure. Um, you know, it is a who you know – who you're affiliated, uh, what are you trying to do on the Hill? Are you trying to be the next, you know, Congress guy, president guy, yeah. man behind the scenes that makes Congress guy or president guy, or are you trying to be the next media guy? Mm-hmm. That's also where the media cats are as well, because you're right there on Capitol Hill and no one cares about local politics. Mm-hmm. Um, so... <laughs> You you go you go to school. You're in D.C. You're you're in the machine. You're literally seeing how the sausage is made. Um, and then you go to apply at CNN. What prompts you to apply at CNN? Man, there's, there's a lot more in between there, actually, bro. Like, well, let's I, get it. Let's get it. <laughs> this is my own yeah. show. I got time. We don't. This. I love it. I love there's it. no. There's. We have to worry about commercials or sponsors or anything. <laughs> well. You know, I got disillusioned with it, man. I had a period there when I first got there. I, I really felt that this was a, a place to do some stuff and change. I wanted to understand the na- you know, why neighborhoods were the way that they were where I grew up and so I'm, I'm Did you grow up in a part of well let me let me backtrack a little bit. Sure. I am from a place called I was born in Oakland, I grew up in a place called Richmond, California, and it's like any ghetto USA. I don't believe one is worse than the other. I have been some bad ones. But if you live in the hood, the hood is the hood, right? The hood is the hood. Uh, Brooklyn looks like Richmond, which looks like Compton, which looks like Bakersfield, which looks like, you know, uh, parts of West Virginia that I've been to. You know, yeah. you show me where people don't have hope. I'll show you where you need to watch yourself at the ATM. If exactly. there's an ATM. Um, so, exactly. yeah, it speaks to this, the, the universality of it and how we're all. The same. The, the one difference is when I go to Cali, like there's the the palm tree is tricky. You think <laughs> beautiful palm trees, and you like you think this isn't the hood. You better be careful. Um, 
that is very true. Well, I will say this: the inner, the quote-unquote urban areas, because of the the sprawl and the design of Los Angeles, look vastly different than mm-hmm. you know when you go to where you're from, where people are living on top of each other. Um, yeah. The worry is the same though. Yeah. Um, but it's interesting that you say that because there's a shift. And I think a younger generation that they can't and it, it's kind of changing back to this now, but there was a shift for a, quite a while where people didn't feel that they can make any sort of real material changes through electoral politics. And the material changes were going to come from philanthropy and, and doing good by doing good. Right. Bill Gates is a benevolent philanthropist in the eyes of many yeah. uh, because he's a gajillionaire. So even though what he does causes massive damage to the world, just look at what he did in India, or what he was a part of. Um, but the philanthropy is is kind of a, a whitewashing in, in the eyes of a lot of the public. Maybe not everybody watching this show, and that's fine. Um, but you are still of an era where you think or you believe, I don't want to say think and belittle that, you believe after working inside the halls of Congress that you can help make material change for neighborhoods like the one you grew up in, for people like you were and your friends and everything else, right? We all have a friend or a group of friends and we're like, man, if there was just X, Y, and Z, then so-and-so wouldn't have got shot. <laughs> um, I mean, that, that, I thought that the same thing. Actually, yeah. So... You wanted to get into politics? Or, I did. Or, okay. Yeah. And yeah, we're, we're talking 2004 to 2008 around. So um, this is the GW Bush era. This is post 9-11 sort of response, Iraq, Afghanistan. And it was it was those wars that, that really radicalized me. It was the response uh, to 9-11, the police state, the rise of the police state, the, the war on terror, quote unquote. And... Uh, just having conversations with people around the hill um, that really challenged my experience from inside the hill, and it mm. was a it was a really interesting shift that occurred. That really I had to make a, a life decision, and I decided to quit. And I, I just went on this whole personal discovery thing, and I was a personal trainer for two years, and reading all the books, and reading up on Noam Chomsky and Howard Zinn, and mm-hmm. um, and uh, Manning Marable, and 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 just <laughs> and then I, uh, I started um, a, a, we- a web magazine with a friend. It was a political mm-hmm. web magazine called SleptOn.com. And I went to grad school. I went to grad school for ethics and international relations at American. So I was really like grappling with all this and just like trying to figure it all out. And we were really active and involved mm-hmm. with, uh, you know, protests at the time around the war. And um, through the website, really started to play with uh, video cameras and editing and managed to land some really cool interviews with really powerful and, and interesting and smart people and thinking completely differently about the world. And so that th- this is all a whole transformation that eventually led to um, doing the animation stuff and starting my little company called BB Digital. I say my little company. I, I love my company. I've had it since, what, 2015 or so. Okay. And um, It's a while. Yeah. Yeah. And... and so CNN began, no, I'm sorry, the company was around 2013, so CNN began in 2015. 
Okay. Um, Did they hire you because of the animation? So yes, I was supposed to, it was a part-time thing. It was, uh, I saw the opportunity and I'm like, and I have my critique already, you know, but I'm also like intrigued, like here's an opportunity and it would, you know, let's just see what happens and it'd be, you know, good for the resume. You know, some people really respect it. So we go and, uh, and this thing just, you know, it translated into a, a full-time deal and I was able to, to learn quite a bit, you know, from the inside and really see how it works and, um, you know, it's it's really interesting to be able to mine that now as I as I create art now. Now you're you're at CNN in 2015, so this is right around the time that we get uh, the rise of of Donald Trump and uh, and uh, and Bernie Sanders. Mm-hmm. I think, in my opinion, a lot of people start this new left that we have now, new burgeoning left, right? in Occupy, and I place it more in Sanders and, and Trump. I think if you want to use the term kayfabe, you know, which is an old vaudeville term for, you know, never breaking character, you never let people in on the magic or the or the trick or what it is, it's of course, using wrestling is you never let people know it's real. I think 2015 we're definitely living in a moment of political theater and i think the rise of these two individuals is is definitely breaking kayfabe especially trump uh coming up to the gop i mean this is not his first time running for president he ran i believe in 2000 or 2004 on the uh whatever the libertarian party's ticket is uh and uh and of course lost and he was looked at as as mostly a joke uh there's definitely people that have written about the fact that trump did run um, not as a joke, but as a counter to contract negotiations with his show, The Apprentice. Um, he's the first president that walks directly off of a stage um, and into uh, the Oval Office. Uh, mm. You know, even Chris Rock had to be an alderman in that movie that he did. His <laughs> president. Where he was president, yeah. <laughs> he at least had to have some sort of uh, political knowledge. And uh, during this rise, um, there is nothing more perfect for cable news than the ascendancy, I think, of um, Donald Trump and for a time Bernie Sanders. Um, again, if you want to use wrestling terms, Donald Trump learns literally everything from his very good friend Vince McMahon. They have very similar childhoods. Both had controlling fathers that were not the biggest fans of them. Um, uh, and Vince McMahon makes a pivot, maybe we can get into this later, of, of being the head of the evil empire. I mean, for damn near 20 years as the head of what is now WWE, most people thought he was just an announcer, even though he was the owner. Um, and Donald Trump you know, for a lot of his younger life, I think he wanted to be a billionaire playboy more than the head of the evil empire. And as he gets older, literally around the same time that McMahon makes his pivot, he makes a pivot to he's the uh, head of the evil corporate empire, anti-hero, if you will, um, running on an anti-hero uh, a ticket. And Bernie Sanders is the baby face, if we're going to use more wrestling terms, the good guy. Wow. That's also breaking kayfabe um, by uh, laying it out 
on what both of their parties kind of stand for and don't stand for. So Donald Trump is calling out the failures of the GOP and Bernie Sanders is calling out the failures of the Democratic Party, um, you know, running on a, a very Captain America almost ticket of, you know, I'm not going to take any corporate money. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm as right. good as it comes. Self-funding. Yeah, right. Okay. It's it's, it's like gonna... you know this is this is as good as it gets. So it's a it's a really a, a almost battle of good and evil to an extent, but much like more complex comics, Donald Trump positions himself again as more, almost an antihero. Even though we get you know they're not sending their best, build a wall, becomes echoed in media. What we don't see as much from these long, multi-hour rallies that he's giving is how much he's trying to connect to a um, disenfranchised working class that has pretty much been trampled on by both parties for the last eight years really hard. You know? um, yeah. And, yeah. And you're there, and I'm, and I'm setting this scene. <laughs> I'm setting this scene because you're there Yeah. for this moment that we're still living into a certain extent here uh, yeah. seven years later. So so tell me about 2015 in the quote-unquote belly of the beast because one of the knocks on CNN is even they didn't double down as hard as Fox and MSNBC on the narratives of good and bad, especially when it came to covering Trump. So uh, I'd love to hear your take on what, what was it like inside the machine I'll tell you what, there were so many, the machine is run by people and the machine is run by um, people who are attached to a whole bunch of different narratives and fears and concerns and ideas and assumptions. Um, and I'll tell you the, the mood in 2015 was pretty certain in, in CNN that um, you know Hillary Clinton was gonna win. So you're, you're talking even from the primaries which there's a lot of build up there. And I guess I got pulled in into the, like the early part of the primaries, but even on the on the day of the election, on election night, I was working and uh, one of my coworkers, I'm like, we're, we're working, I'm getting off at seven, I'm going home. Mm-hmm. And one of my coworkers was like, what? You, is my, you know, she's like, you at CNN, um, Wolf Blitzer and Anderson are upstairs. They had the whole thing. You were talking about the food and the spread. They had a whole spread. Like if you wanted, it was fully, everybody, yeah. you know, it's catered. The whole bureau can hang out and chat. And, you know, she's like, you don't want to see the uh, first female president. Like this is historic, you know? And I said, hmm, I don't know if that's going to happen. You know, like I'm not certain about that result. And I was like, I'll just go home. I'll see you tomorrow. And uh, obviously there was all kinds of dispute, but but Trump had been declared a winner, and the mood for weeks after in the building was just a, a very nervous haze. No one had, very very few people had, think, you know, everyone was very quiet and kind of looking around and trying to figure out what happened. Uh, and I think we're still trying to do that on some, like I'm out of the building, but I think people are still trying to do that because the full narrative has to include um, the narrative of cable news networks profiting mm-hmm. off of this, mm-hmm. off of this spectacle, and you know, instead of having us debate or discuss meaningful things, they had, uh, I don't know, altogether several hours of just empty podium content, you know, of people waiting for Trump to speak. He was just a, mm-hmm. uh, a train wreck that everybody 
love to watch. So there's free airtime. Um, even if you look at the political, sort of DNC expenditures, they were actually there was actually support for Donald Trump because it was considered that he was a lunatic candidate and yeah. and he, he couldn't win. So they actually helped fund and supported and validated him through the media. Said this is the this is a helpful strategy for the Democrats to validate these lunatic candidates. Uh, as though they were meaningful ones, and then it turns back and and he wins. And um, I mean, it's just it was just a nutty situation. And, and again, I mean, I think we have to remember that uh, Donald Trump, again, this wasn't his first run at uh, president. And if you go back to even the '92 or '96 election when Ross Perot runs, we still don't give a lot of validity to to third party candidates. Um, yeah. And, and even the Ross Perot running, you know, changes the way third party candidates can even you know, get into the big time debates. So the idea that uh, a person can come not as a third party candidate, but, you know, come through the GOP ticket full of these establishment. Yeah. Uh, you know, Jeb Bush. You know, I'm sure a lot of us felt that he was going to be in line to run. Um, not yeah, to say this, but who was the other guy that he Trump said his dad killed Kennedy? <laughs> it was a uh, was it Cruz? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cruz. yeah. He, so, you know, he, yeah. he blew them away. He demonstrated that there's a whole other model, man. You can dispense with all the uh, the officialdom kind of stuff and be crude and. And he just saw he just the way the polls work now, not just the polls, which are the political polls, but the um, the ratings, the rating numbers. You know, you can see live minute to minute, you know, where people are um, being are reacting to certain things. And as you said, he learned from Vince McMahon. They're all learning from a prior epoch, a prior generation of, of propagandists and uh, this ability to turn on a dime and be creatively engaging and, and crass and cruel and, and apolitical, which made him seem like, you know, yeah. he's going to drain the swamp and all that, that, that really did it. And he played right into the media's hands. The media could not turn away. They made uh, like insane record profits. We would get meetings and, and hear about how well uh, CNN was doing. How did that make you feel? Uh, honestly, and again, you're in the machine. Everything is different when you're in it. And you hear these things that giving this person all of this uh, publicity is then giving record profits. I don't know if they're handing out bonuses, but I do know what it looks like when a company's doing good. You get a lot of stuff that maybe you didn't get before. You're like, oh, wow. They got they brought a catered lunch from this fancy restaurant today. That's, that's fucking awesome. Oh, we all got these... L.L. Bean uh, CNN jackets for <laughs> for Christmas. Oh, wow, they gave us all Beats headphones with our names on them, you know? <laughs> Stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah, and, and you shut up when that wow. happens. So what's going on for you, or yeah. is this the moment where you're starting to go, I don't know if this is uh, for me? Well, I knew, I knew CNN wasn't necessarily for me. I, I knew from the jump, like I had this critique, I had this experience uh, years prior, uh, where um, I had a strong structural critique of the media. You know, I, I used to pinch myself actually for a bit because I can't believe that I was 
like I, I created so much content about CNN in particular. So here I am um, sitting across from Jake Tapper, creating a cartoon with him. Here I am working with you know one, one of the producers for Wolf Blitzer or Don Lemon and like doing this thing. And I'm like, I, I have for me the five years that I was there, it was very important for me to have a lot of good conversations. I tried to learn as much as I could about how they produce content 24/7 around the clock and um, and I had conversations with as many people as I could to sort of understand you know the ideas in the room and what what was going on um, so that, that's really the that's really the mindset I went I went with it the entire time so that was helpful because when I would notice things that were that were nuts you know I would just write it down and like pay attention and that's all so you're keeping um, your your uh, your uh, whistleblower notebook is what you're telling me. <laughs> whistleblower <laughs> notebook, yeah, I guess it would be like a little text or email to myself, you know, I'd be like, yo, this was crazy today, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it was just an insane learning process, and what made me eventually leave was, well, it was just a slow process of figuring out how to leave, frankly, how to how to sort of find a way out and so I started to, to, to get more creative. I leaned into my YouTube page. I started to create more on a schedule and say I wanted to I want to see if I can create independent content and be independent in that way. Uh, and so that's been my aim. And you know I, I vacillate between just some of my political stuff and um, just nutty it's, weird it's, it's stuff. Some, and some fun animation stuff. Exactly. Yeah no, I know I saw that which yeah. I think is cool. We can't be all the time, uh, which literally is why I do this. But and I'm going to be all serious. That's uh, you got it. You got to have it, man. And I see you on stage too, bro. Like, like that energy, you know. Take letting that out, you know. That's so important. Well, I I haven't I haven't. Hopefully August or October 23rd. Hopefully we <laughs> LA okay? will be letting out. Well, I won't be doing the metal stuff. We're doing a live doing a live podcast with a few other channels and a bunch of guests and stuff uh, October 23rd in LA but um, seriously here's here's a question I have considering the, the places you were and the people you were with why do you think they were so Bernie Sanders adverse mm. in the coverage just your personal opinion yeah you know there's a lot of just group think that goes on guys you know there's a lot of like uh what is safe what is what is predictable you do uh if you're a producer for one of these shows there's so many little things that can go wrong so many little technical things that can go wrong a microphone off a camera this or that mm-hmm. somebody's not where they're supposed to be for the for the thing so i think there's such an offloading that goes on mm-hmm. and it's just a, uh, it happens un unknowingly we're offloading even the process of ge- like any genuine, meaningful analysis, and they're simply repeating what the New York Times said, whatever the other shared sources are, and so that's going to drive you all the time to some milk toast, easy, predictable middle that's not really satisfying. So you're saying, oh wow, that's kind of fascinating, um, because CNN starts off being the arbiter of truth that's you know i i'd sent billy a trailer for the upcoming uh video essay 
And hopefully, we all can work together and put Billy on the spot now. We can. <laughs> we do some stuff, yo. Yeah, we can. We can have him make everything pop even more. Because I mean, imagine, uh, you know, adding some cool animation to that, to that trailer part where the title sequence comes up. That is going to be really hopefully. It's already tight. We're going to tighten it up. Yeah. Um, but but seriously, um. You know, CNN is supposed to be the one of the arbiters of truth, and of course, Fox News changes their motto. I don't remember when, maybe after 9/11. You know, fair and balanced, right? So someone is telling the the capital T truth. Right, um, right, right, right. And and I think we're in a moment, especially right now, where news has become so partisan, especially in the the cable sphere or the televised, just the televised sphere, even what we do here independently. It's just so, so partisan that people believe that there's a, a right-wing story and a left-wing story, and it, it, somewhere in the middle lies the truth. And there's all these people that uh, position themselves as arbiters of the truth. No, I know the real story. Come to CNN, but it's the real story. Right. But uh, it all feels like like what you're saying uh, gossip. If you're getting all of your information, New York Times says today, blah, blah, blah. And this is a news show, quote unquote. And I believe you talk about it. Um, and, and we can definitely get in, get into this too, that when these guys get sued, it's no longer news. It's no longer fair and balance. It's no longer, we are the arbiters of truth. It's, this is just entertainment. Yes. I don't know why you shot up that school and blamed us because it's just entertainment. So if you want to get into that. I think, honestly, <laughs> listen, that when they get in front of a judge, uh, the claims about what they are become much more uh, clear. They're much more clear-headed about what they are. The marketing around fair and balanced and, and capital T truth. I think so this is obviously it's marketing, it's a it's a it's a it's a um an industry sort of with different players trying to promote themselves. Everyone wants to be first, everyone wants to be true. I think the, the roots of this are really deep mm-hmm. and it's a philosophical question about mm-hmm. what is the capital T truth. And I don't think anyone has a claim on that. I don't think such a thing exists. I I, I certainly don't think it's a matter of taking an opinion from a so-called left and a so-called right and then and finding a middle. Um, <laughs> mm-hmm. That doesn't make any sense. But it's all what happens is the difficult project of trying to ascertain and describe and share truth. It's such a difficult process that what they're doing 24 hours a day mm-hmm. is instead instead just telling stories and making the claim about truth. That's it. You know, um, two years before I left, they they got an award CNN did for that Apple commercial, the commercial with the apples and the, mm-hmm. um, you know, it was an award-winning advertising series that is essentially a total lie, you know, mm-hmm. and the the truth of it is that that journalism. I think bolsters and boosts itself on the idea of objectivity, like these scientific qualities that it simply doesn't have. You know, journalists, the best journalists, in my view, are Mm -hmm. those. I mean, I think there's benefit to having access uh, and command of of the language, you know, so it's someone who can articulate their point of view. And I think I think our best position is to 
is to know that you're simply looking at a point of view. You're looking at a work of art, you know, mm-hmm. constructed by all kinds of producers and different issues and values. And um, to dispense with the entire the entire big T truth thing altogether, that just warps everything. It makes it makes everything more difficult. Yeah. I mean, I mean, using the the word art. <laughs> I I think. It's interesting, this, dude. That's kind of fascinating because when I I've been doing all this research for this thing, right? And I'm reading about the history of the pivot of news as entertainment. Before mm-hmm. it was just guys that read the stories, and then then there was a documentary division. You know, three major networks in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, or more so 50s and 60s, had divisions that just made documentaries about stuff, and news was looked at as a loss leader. Um, because there was entertainment programming that would pick up the slack. And also, you could present yourself as a good corporate citizen. And local news was very different because we didn't have um, the consolidation of ownership of so many stations. So you had uh, local people that owned the local radio and and television station. Right. So it's a very different uh, relationship with the news yeah. Um, by the time you're with CNN, local news is really only interesting if it's a national story for most people, right? Outside of weather, yeah, and maybe local sports, um, traffic. Really, what do you what do people watch local news for? Other than you know maybe somebody got shot by a cop and it becomes a national story or some sort of you know kidnapping. You know, true crime becomes news. And I think that's part of, you know, I see people commenting about Trump. And, and one of the comments that I always see is, you know, it's so stupid and blah, 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 blah. I definitely think that the moment of Trump is over. And a lot of people even that voted for him, not everybody, not everybody, mm-hmm. not everybody. <laughs> but I think that moment where people really want this type of Washington outsider, true anti-hero is over. Hmm. And I don't think it's going to garner the same sort of um, news coverage hmm. because it's, we've already seen what the Trump show does. Yeah. A lot of people have dead family members because of COVID and for, for the re- for the rest of his life, he's always going to be the COVID guy. Um, and so I think the new terrain, if we're talking about national media, is going to be who's going to take the reins from the GOP. It looks like maybe DeSantis. And my political tea leaves tell me, and I'm not saying any of this because I want it to happen. This is just what I Okay. I think Gavin Newsom. Okay. Um, okay. If, you don't, if, you, if they don't try to bring you know Biden out, who's just more and more senile. Yeah, it's tough, bro. Yeah, I mean, I, I know, I know so little about Gavin Newsom. I haven't been following him very, very much, to be honest with you. Um, it, it just, it just feels that that's that's a, a fight, um, a political fight that gives you all the wrestling kayfabe that you could possibly want. Um, Trump and Hillary doesn't really give you too much if you really think about it. Um, it uh, when when Trump went against Hillary Clinton, you didn't really get. The, she's not the baby face. Mm. She's a she's a villain in her own right. 
True. So that put Trump in the perfect anti-hero box. Yeah. You know, Trump becomes Charles Bronson in a in a Death Wish movie, or or even Dirty Harry. Um, against you know Hillary Clinton's like blatant corruption, she's got a, a record. So Hillary's like that's what I'm saying because she she's actually pretty establishment. So she's like, I think of her like MI6. She's like M. <laughs> Uh, right. <laughs> 007 hits her up. She's like, "Come on, Bond. Come on." <laughs> I I, I kind of saw her in the whole thing for a lot of people as a, as a bit of a villain because the baby face, i.e. Bernie Sanders, was running against her, and she's yeah. positioned as the person that knocked out everybody's hope. Not everybody, but a lot of people's hope. Um, you know, this is a moment where we're finally starting to grapple with things that we never talked about before on a level like this. Um, yeah. Nationalized health care. The burden of student debt. And what does it look like if we treat regular people like we treat major corporations in the finance industry who had just gotten bailed out a few years earlier? Um, so this is a conversation for a lot of people that was just like a dream to hear a politician have. Because I think the sad thing is in all of this conversation and even stuff that's perpetrated, perpetuated by mainstream media is that we need a hero to save us. And who is said hero? Is it going to be – say again? What was that second question? I said who and who is that hero? Gotcha. And and – it's constant. You know, is AOC the hero? You know, it's one congresswoman that only got ten thousand votes from Queens. What is she really going to yeah, do? Yeah, yeah. You know, well, her and these other—they're the hero. Bernie, just wheel him out. <laughs> just yeah, wheel him out. It doesn't matter. Just wheel him out. <laughs> <laughs> it's just a talking head like speaking real nice. I, I think that's a big problem. Fundamentally, the cable news companies underserve the viewer by simplifying our problems by um, creating narratives that are uh, absurdly, you know, comical, like literally comical (laughs) in the sense that, you know, these are complex things. I've been, I've been contemplating more and more how, how deeply complex everything is. Once you pull a thread here, something else gives way. There are, there are um, benefits and, you know, challenges to every every decision and and we are all resting on the foundation of generations of prior decisions prior political battles won and lost um and to then say oh we need person x <laughs> and then do, do a little like montage video and it's just it's it really is spectacle and it harms us because what we most need um and what what when when the media is, is is trying to kind of hype themselves up, they herald themselves as a pillar of spreading information to to create uh, educated voters and all this stuff, and they do exactly the opposite. It's it's really rough. So, oh, I mean, again, that's why when I saw your work <laughs> mixed with with what I've what I've been doing of of late. It really just I I saw the synthesis in it Um, because I have a fear, too, of what happens 
when we get too addicted to personalities and drama. Um, and, and it's, and it, it infiltrates all aspects of media. Again, even in this space right now, you know, terms get thrown around. This person's a grifter or the new one is like opportunist or careerist. I don't even know what that means. Like, is Dan rather a careerist? Like, I don't, I don't, <laughs> I don't know what, a, like, is that, is that, how is that negative? Like, explain it to me how you mean it. Yeah. But, but if, There's an influencer moment that we're in right now that is part of the information economy. Yeah, definitely. And that influencer, in my opinion, is definitely part of cable news. The little bit of cable news that, that I, and I only kind of watch it if I'm um, messing around and checking out, you know, one of the bigger shows that do the whole news critique thing. Um, but all these people on CNN, Fox, MSNBC, they, it feels almost like because a lot of the old guard is gone. Like Matt Al's gone now. Yeah. It, it feels like it's just influencer culture influencing, influencing this new media where even the sets don't even resemble the old news sets that they used to resemble with some of those shows. There's a couch and everybody's sitting around talking. And it yeah. just feels like the view, but for incels. <laughs> you know what? That's funny because I'm actually a fan. I'm, I'm a fan of some of those changes, um, at least the visual changes. Mm-hmm. I think the visual changes are, or sorry, the old set kind mm-hmm. of stuff and the suit and the tie are all dragging away. Mm-hmm. And it's a stand-in for what could be, um, I think something more meaningful. It's a stand-in. Like there's always the journalists when they speak, they they herald the halcyon days of, of the um, Watergate. You know, the journalists. Yeah. That's it, it's so funny that we always have to. There's always this like go back to the 70s to look at this when journalists took down power. It's like we got stuff right now. You know, <laughs> right now. You know, we don't have to do that. But um, but when you see that that performance to me, that look. And the sound, the voice, you see these, mm-hmm. you know, you want to get on TV, you've got to do the voice and whatever, you know, and so, but that's all some other stuff. I like some of the changes. I like the, uh, as long as it's more genuine to me, mm-hmm. you know, if we're moving to a space that is genuine exchange, genuine um, clashes where the point isn't to clash, you know, you know, just for the sake of it, but to actually, we can pull out a truth together through the conflict. Um, you know, I don't mind if we're sitting down, you know, in in a loincloth. Who cares, man? For me, you know, I'm like let's do it. Let's, let's talk. Um, it it feels like it feels like to me that um, our digestion of media is, you know, post 9/11. I think there's a moment post 9/11 where cable news really blows up um especially fox um because it's a moment where a lot of us are terrified and frightened right and uh we need the news to tell us what's what and that's when Mm -hmm. that crawling chiron (laughs) becomes like a big time thing around that time like i i need i need to take in all this information all the time Uh, i remember a lot of us just had some form of cable news on 24 7 and that 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 kind of a thing now it's a little bit different um 
I think there's so many options one has. And what I find interesting is it feels like, and we were saying this on the show that will air tomorrow, that news, mainstream media chases social media in a way. Did you see that uh, when you were at CNN, that they were following Twitter feeds and Oh, for sure. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, one of the big marks, like New York Times and other uh, mainstream outlets are talking about CNN as having, you know, they're rebranding and they're going back to journalism. But under the, like I was there during the Zucker years, you know, this guy, Jeff Zucker was the CEO. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I don't know if it was like, to what degree, how much was him or just a broader, the technology of Twitter was, had come into prominence and, um, yeah, Twitter is powerful. They were getting there. He had a, a philosophy of news called uh, what do you call it? Da, da, da. swarm swarm coverage, where you take swarm coverage. Okay. Swarm coverage. You take three or four. You have 24 hours by the day. By the way, you, Jason, you have, you are the CEO of CNN for a second. I want you to do this, okay? Okay. You have 24 hours to cover everything in the in the world. And this philosophy says you take the three or four highest ranking Google Trends stuff and the stuff ranking high and trending on Twitter. And CNN contorts itself to match those metrics in order to capture the clicks from that. And so wow. that's that's what's happening. And this is a major – I mean this is a reversal I think on people's minds about what, what goes on. You think that they are – uh, parsing through and creating their own um, agendas, but but it's it's actually driven by social media metrics in the same way. It's all tied up. So, I mean, obviously, I, I think the effects of that it just it just made everybody crazy um, <laughs> over the years. And then you add Trump, and you add, and, and they're all competing. Mm-hmm. So they're competing, and and then you need spectacles. So. You know, I'm actually the thing I I just wrote something about this, but the next thing I want to write really is to talk about the way I think the Black Lives Matter movement was was failed. We had this incredible moment in history after. Whoa. Yeah. So here's what's funny. You remind me because all light skinned black people look alike. You remind (laughs) me of a young Cedric Johnson. Cedric Johnson. Cedric Johnson wrote The Panthers Google. Can't Save Us Now, and he wrote probably one of the most important books um, from revolutionaries to race leaders, if you really want to understand. Um, That's so funny. If, if you really want to understand politics. Um, I kind of see it on the uh, on the <laughs> on the look, the light skin brothers look the same. Just, just face it. I'd say I mean to all you people because you people got all the women when I was younger, so. Oh, I grew up in the God. '90s. It was a, it was a light skinned man, free for all. That's hilarious. But then the brother, then the dark and the brother suited. Wait, Wesley Snipes came in and changed a lot. But then he the was. Just, I'm not. Yeah. I'm not payphone black like Wesley Snipes. So it's, <laughs> it's just <laughs> it wasn't working out. Uh, wasn't working out for me. But anyway, like all jokes aside, please, if you get a chance, uh, check out uh, from revolutionaries to race leaders. It's it's kind of. Uh, an important book that will lead you. And then The Panthers Can't Save Us Now. His his upcoming book literally talks about everything you're talking about right now. Uh, Pascal and I are writing a uh, a blurb for his his new book. Um, awesome. And, and I just finished the, the introduction. And uh, it's one of those where you go, 
this is really good, but man, <laughs> they gonna be mad at you. Uh, but it's 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 amazing. But it it yeah. does get into everything that you're wanting to get into as far as as far as BLM. Nutty man. Um, <laughs> I don't know if you want to get into it here, but like, yeah, I think you know. Just the timing, the timing of these moments, you know, with the technologies and with the political things, I think it was everything was underserved. The spirit, the energy of that of that moment, that potentiality to um, reform policing and reform, you know, defund mm-hmm. the police and the the broader like actual proper meaning and definition of what that could have meant, um, lost lost all of it in the mix of this spectacle nonsense. <laughs> And uh, it's pretty bad. Well, I mean, and and if you want to hear me and Cedric, the first time he ever came on the show, we got into a long conversation about BLM. And he's probably, I think, the most honest and fair of us that are not necessarily fans, but appreciate a certain sentiment and a certain awareness that it brought to a conversation. But understanding the limitations of what happens when people from the foundation industry are chasing chasing a hashtag, um, and you know they had a moment during Trayvon Martin, and then it kind of dies out a little bit, and then you get another moment big time during George Floyd and COVID. And there's a lot of things that get into into that i don't think it happens in a vacuum i don't think people saw one thing and said okay we're going to protest and riot because in that same state on the other side of of the of the the, the other city st paul the other side of the bridge mm-hmm. uh Flando castile got killed a few years before that where they, mm-hmm. hey officer i got a gun but it's legal okay. no problem we're all good here pillar of the community from from all the reports that i read decent decent cat and, uh, and his wife is right there, child in the back, correct? Child in the back seat, and the cop unloaded, and nothing happened. So the city didn't blow up then. I think COVID and the lockdown, or I shouldn't say lockdown, COVID and the shelter-in-place orders and people feeling confined and watching so many things that had happened kind of in a, in a succession. You know, Breonna Taylor had happened right before that, and before that, Ahmaud Arbery happened right before that. And, and um, it was it felt like the perfect release valve at this moment. Um, but there's something to be said about yelling and, and, and protesting and then I'm done. Um, and what, no, go ahead, please go ahead. This is what happens though, because, you know, absent a proper grounding and an actual narrative about the complexity of the situation, what CNN wanted, what MSNBC wanted was a tight and easy race crime. Uh, a state-perpetrated homicide uh, with racial implications, with a white man and a black mm-hmm. man. It was a horrible visual. I, I actually, I've actually been detained twice by police as a kid, and it, you know, just on mm-hmm. a personal level, I was really upset by it. And obviously, the nation was. There was this opportunity to talk about who George Floyd was to me. This is my critique. Mm-hmm. We had an opportunity to talk about who George Floyd was and how he got to be at that corner on that day and that's a big conversation about his childhood about you know the economy about mm-hmm. all mm-hmm. kinds of things that would tie us in it would be a narrative that would be you know unifying and 
really do justice to 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 the men. And instead, um, like you said, chasing hashtags, we've got slogans and we've got just like um, easier, cheaper, less 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 deep narratives that kept like the rate the racial criteria was was great and it was great for ratings but it didn't give us the opportunity to talk about the way that George Floyd was was failed you know every day prior to the day of his death you see and so then because you had, you failed to have that conversation then when you talk about defunding the police and and funding social services broader social uplift mm-hmm. those those connections can't be made because George Floyd was killed because he was black and because a white guy hated him. That's what if, it was. If, if that, yeah. If, if to me, if your conversation stops there, if it just stops there and uh, someone very close to me told me that someone sent them today uh, officer worn footage of a cop shooting uh, a man with a knife, white cop shooting a white guy because the, the guy was drunk and was being a nuisance at a fair or something. And, uh, the uh, the cop shot the guy and killed him. We're not going to hear about this, like what you said. It's which I thank you for saying that out loud. By the way, that they want a racial, they need the racial strife. And I think one of the things that we don't talk about a lot is the perfect victim. Um, and I think the best case for that was Centoya uh, Brown. Centoya Brown became really popular with a meme of her when she was 16. By the time that meme came out, she was in her 30s. So showing her as a grown woman probably doesn't hit the same way. But showing this young girl with pigtails in uh, county killer orange uh, definitely had an effect. And then the words that went beside it hit even harder. She was sex trafficked by a pimp named Cutthroat and killed her sex trafficker. Sounds a lot better than she had a boyfriend who was her pimp. They were both addicted to crack and she killed and robbed a John. Sounds a lot different. And when you look for the perfect victim and you need to have the perfect narrative, then you'll never understand what justice looks like, in my opinion. And what made the Centoya Brown story interesting to me was that I actually went back and read the original news article that came out from a weekly uh, investigative journalist in Nashville, I think, where she's from. And it's about a 6,000, maybe 10,000 word piece. It's pretty long. It's kind of hard to find because there's been so many pieces post her release. Um, But I think it's about from 20, maybe 2009 to 2011. It's around in there somewhere. And it tells the story of kind of why she even came to prominence. And that was because the, I believe it was the district attorney that wrote the decision to keep her in jail when they were trying to get her uh, clemency. Mm. He looked at the case file. He's like, no, she can stay in. He started teaching a class at the prison, a college-level law class, where even his law students were coming to this class, first-year law students. He felt that she was the most intelligent person he'd ever been around. She was doing just circles around these, these kids, and the more he knew about her, the more he found out about her, he was like, why is she in here? 
He didn't know. He literally didn't know who she was. So he goes and gets her file, sees his name Mm. as the person that keeps her in. It was from meeting her, hearing her story, understanding her story. This isn't about right, right. This isn't about, you know, did she do it? Did she didn't? Yes, she did it. You know, she yeah. says she did. It's a recorded conversation of her calling yeah. her her adopted mother. She did. She was so young and kind of out of it. She was like, yeah, I'll see you later. And her mom was like, girl, please stop talking on the phone. She's like, yeah, I did it. And I'm, I'm coming home in a little bit. You know, she. And it wasn't the crime itself. It was like this this guy goes, well, I don't think the world's a better place with her locked up. And I think there's so many circumstances that, like, as you said, led her here. Correct. But the story of Centoya Brown is not this story because that that article is buried. Maybe you get a little bit of that if you watch the PBS documentary that comes around around 2010. But the story you get is sex traffic. Killing the 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 trafficker which is technically the john whatever whatever you want to call it exactly you know that that becomes the story that becomes a narrative and she has to be a perfect victim she has to forever be 16 years old she can't be a a, i think she's like 38 or so now um and i feel the same way with george floyd kind of the same way with rodney king i'll go back to rodney king you know what was he doing? I, you know, I did this this video essay on that, <laughs> and I opened it with an Oprah episode where this white girl is like, "What was he doing? Going a hundred miles an hour in a school zone?" You know? <laughs> it's, it, it's it's why does someone have to be um a perfect human, right, to not lose their humanity because law enforcement gets overzealous? And we've missed that story in news reporting. And you're telling us right now, look, the narrative they want is Trayvon Martin got a lot of attention for us for a long time. Black kid, Skittles, uh, whitish guy. <laughs> it's, easy. it's easy. Right. Whitish guy. Right. It's easier. And, and obviously that, that, that one's even feels more easy to me, you know, you know, and he's turned out to be a complete asshole. The, oh, yes. What's his name? Zimmerman. Zimmerman. But I would say um, it's easy. It's also politically expedient. You know, the the more grandstanding and supportive, like, you know, put Nancy Pelosi, give her a, give her the, the cloth, <laughs> and, and, and that's easy. That's way easier than to actually delve into the structural problems in Minnesota and Minneapolis that would implicate Democrats up and down, you know, the national down to the state level um, and implicate the neoliberal project, implicate all kinds of stuff that has been under uh, reported, under looked at. So so just keep it easy. Keep it simple. It's too messy, you know, um, and it speaks to the, the challenge in, in storytelling, because and this is something I wanted to kind of hit home in, in the last thing I wrote that, you know, when someone writes a story, whether it's me, you our parents, whether it's this, like, the, the kid fresh out of journalism school, whether it's Dan Rather, okay, they can't help, we can't help but to write 
from our perspective. We are using the language that we are we have to our veil. We are using uh, um, the memories, like the, the words we'll use. Like I said, we'll use uh, direct language here. We'll use euphemism over there. Mm-hmm. And sometimes, you know, if you're writing for a big paper, you got character limits, you got certain spatial limitations. So how do you tell a story about George Floyd or or these or these other any story? You know, uh, you'll have to you'll have to pick w- where you see the limits of what's relevant. And the truth is that it's all relevant. <laughs> and um, so we just need more, I think, storytellers and more honesty and transparency about that limitation in storytelling, where it's like I'm telling you what I know. Based on this, blah, 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 I'm not telling you any any truth here at all, by any means. Because if not, you get crazy, you know? And then you get Fox News claiming all kinds of dumb shit. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it, again, you know, here's another one. Believe it. Here's another one. Here's another one. And I want you to tell me how you feel about this. So you're a football guy, Brett Favre. Mm-hmm. Former quarterback of the Green Bay Packers and New York Jets and uh, Minnesota Vikings uh, is embroiled in a bit of a scandal where he's received, I think it was like hundreds of millions of dollars for uh, speaking engagements that was that was paid from the welfare fund in the state that's struggling with water right now, Mississippi, his home state as well. And the story, in my opinion, is not a story of corruption as much as it's a story of what they always are, bad actors. Brett Favre's a bad actor. The governor's a bad actor. We need to get these bad actors out of here. Of course. Um, it's yeah. foolish to think that no one knew what was going on. It wasn't like the governor was giving him uh, a check out of his own checkbook you know, for this these massive amounts of money. You know, this was a lot of people knew what happened and we live in a system that rewards callousness um you don't get a billion dollars because you were a good corporate citizen right you know you 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 stepped on some labor laws you exploited some people uh you exploited some in, in the, of the environment there's a lot of damage that was done to get that billion but that billion is is always um, applauded, and it's That's foolish hard. to think that that mindset stops at at the corporate sector. That mindset doesn't stop. It's the mindset of people that I grew up with, right? I gotta get mine. Doesn't stop. It's not a hood mindset. It is the mindset of the world in which we live in. Right. But the story of Brett Favre and corruption is one, in my opinion, is one of drama, maybe some mild political intrigue, but not really a a story of, well, this is what happens when you work within this system, right? Someone's saying, you know, Brett Favre is a total grifter. He and his wife are involved in a multi-level marketing scam called AdvoCare. I believe everything, I'm going to put you on the screen, Caitlin Kay. I believe everything you are saying. Clay, Clay I apologize, Caitlin. Um, I don't doubt that. Yeah. But again, you don't get a billion dollars because, you know, you're just an awesome dude and did a cool thing. And 
that that mindset you know people go well he already had so much money of course of course like, you don't get a billion dollars because you were satisfied at a hundred million correct <laughs> correct yeah and this stuff has really it's seeped into everything you know i'll be honest i don't know the the fullness of what brett Favre did or, or that particular situation but there are so many <laughs> the grifts are so plentiful right now they come from they're coming from every angle and uh, <clears throat> I just I find it interesting too to watch when the media actually steps up. CNN will the the grifts that they call grifts um, versus the grifts that go on incessantly that never get any airtime that you know don't get brought to our attention. And so that that actually ties into like the the student loan debate recently. You know, um, it it blows my mind that like the conversations that we start to have conversations about where our money should go and we should have an economist come and tell us about the <laughs> negative harmful effects on the state and this and that if, if if students can get this thing paid off and we don't have those kinds of debates we don't have any awareness on these um slush funds that pop up whether they're military related or Things that pop up all the time are people people who who are in the know can sign up and the PPP loan forgiveness. Oh thing, yeah. You know, um, why should and and you see these libertarian people who are all all about you know rugged individualism. They're cool with PPP. They're cool <laughs> with all these things. They're cool with it. They're like they're like yo this is so the government shouldn't intervene in the market ever except when they're bailing out you know companies mm -hmm. in 2008 and they'll and Days after, they'll be right back on their austerity and neoliberal, like, you know, market nonsense. Um, so it's just an unfair game. The narratives are, you know, the people have control of the microphone and they get to draw the linkages for us. Um, after, you know, student loans, a lot of my friends popped up on Facebook, all this inner libertarian. Why should I pay for that? <laughs> I'm like, yo, you pay for mad shit, dude. <laughs> all kinds of stuff all of the time and just to be like I, my question to them is like just be logical please please like consider are you upset because this student loan this paltry student loan thing is you think and over <clears throat> is it too expensive because i can point to any number of programs that are, that is that are more expensive and are actually harmful that don't go to Americans that have no and you know there are ways it can be done differently but the truth is you are angry today because your information source has has made a link for you mm. that that is intentional mm. your your information source has 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 ginned you up to be upset about this socialism <laughs> mm -hmm. and um, let's just be clear about that. No, that's kind of my my whole thing. I think the people are are you know fired up on things that because of the way it's presented. Again, like Brett Favre, you know, it's if you told those same people, well, aren't you mad at Brett Favre for literally taking money away from poor families? Um, they might have a different perspective, or he's just smart because he gamed the system. Which to me is the narrative in all those Wall Street movies, Wolf of Wall Street, the movie Crazy. Wall Street, all those stock movies are always like, well, I would have done it differently and I would have walked away with this much and I wouldn't have been so so greedy. Um, but I think 
the story of Brett Favre is one where I kind of shrugged my shoulders. I was like, well, we live in a world of people like this. I just don't think a lot of people understand um, the full lengths that it goes because we don't see the developing world. The developing world is covered differently. The developing world is only something cared about. There's a natural disaster that knocked down a bunch of Nipah huts. Or if uh, a dictator is doing uh, uh, a genocide. And right. even then, if I asked anybody right now, chat, I'll ask you guys right now. Biggest story of the 90s. What's the biggest news story to come out of the 90s? Sands, the fall of the Soviet Union. I'll count to three. Mm. In my head. Or I'll just play this. So no, no one, had, no one said anything either. They're, they're not, I don't know. But I'm thinking too, bro. Okay, wh- someone says Desert Storm. Interesting. Someone says Rodney King, Monica and Bill. You know what? As a matter of fact, I'm going to put the chat on the screen, uh, which I don't like to do during the Those regular shows. Ones, <laughs> uh, Monica and Bill. Interesting. Uh, oh, thank you, O.J. Simpson. Awesome. Notorious Big. There it is. Uh, I vote Monica and Bill. What do you say? Bill. Man, um, I remember OJ Huge. I remember Rodney, Rodney King and Desert Storm. Did we mention Y2K or is that that's 90, right? 99, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, Cameron, I'm asking people, what's the biggest news story to come out of the 90s? Kevin Taylor Pokemon. says Pokemon. You are a damn <laughs> fool, Kevin. <laughs> Pokemon was huge, y'all. But not not the most covered, just the, the most important news story in your opinion. This is just your oh, opinion, yeah. Cameron. Important. Yeah, in your opinion. Different question. Um, I don't know. But I, I do like the way we kind of we automatically, and this just goes to what you talk about. <laughs> automatically, yeah. the most covered. Everything people are talking about are stories that were more drama related, right? And if you think about what happened during the '90s, there was a genocide in the Balkans that got no coverage. Yeah. OJ's trial preempted playoff basketball mm-hmm. you know what i mean mm-hmm. um and yeah. when we think about the trial of the century which we called oj there's nothing political about that and let's fast forward if i was to ask someone okay from 2000 let's say no let's say post 9 so let's say from 2008 to where we are now what's the biggest news story no one's going to say the afghanistan papers which explains why a 20-year war happened where no one knew what was going on no one's going to say the panama papers which explains how many people have funny money in offshore accounts even world leaders now, if we go in the Wayback Machine and we go to the 60s and 70s, I lie is huge. You know, the Pentagon Papers, these are, these are extremely important moments in history, Deep Throat and, uh, and Watergate. But when we think about breaking news stories outside of the ones that I mentioned that never really got the coverage because there is no partisan spin for that stuff because both parties exactly. were involved. Exactly. Um, that's, that's what we are. <laughs> you, you know what? What is what is a real popular story that people want to talk about? 
that people are invested in, you know? Um, and, and I, and I think that's my point, which I think dovetails with your point about news and the way it's reported to us. If all you get is, you know, damn it, that Brett Favre <laughs> or, yep. or, or Brett Favre, this smooth snake. Yep. You're never really getting an indictment of the system that makes Brett Favre exist. Exactly. Exactly. And, so, it, and it, it, that's such a big failing because not only do you fail to properly understand the system that makes Brett Favre exist, but <laughs> that, that failure, that structural blind spot is going to carry over into your capacity to understand other things all over the place. So, you know, after I left CNN, there's all this rebranding and people left. and But there was this uptick in awareness about media and a critique about media. And I would watch uh, this guy, Brian Stelter. He would critique uh, the first black Bill president. <laughs> oh, no. Maya, or or uh, Tony Morrison said that about Bill Clinton. I remember that. Mm-hmm. Um, the... Um, so yeah, they'd be a, like on CNN. They would critique Fox News. You know, they would talk about Tucker Carlson, Hannity, and and you would see this. And I would laugh because I'm thinking like they have to know that this is a deeper, there's a deeper way to talk about this. Talking about Hannity as a person, as an individual, is a failure. You're failing. He's not just a guy who has a bunch of ideas and is trying to be honest. He he's reading from a teleprompter. He, he he met and had text conversations with Trump twice this morning, you know? Mm-hmm. It's all a, a machine. There's advertisers that he's mindful of. There's produ- production, this, that, and the third. And, uh, but back to the spectacle, back to the wrestling metaphor, man. You don't, you kinda, you you know, the whole the whole game is to is to wink and a nod, but to keep keep playing the thing. You know, we're gonna yeah. look and talk about each other as, as, as though this isn't a big, nonsense <laughs> and the, and that's what's and that's what's uh fascinating to me and scary to me all at the same time yeah because uh you know even sports and I'll, and I'll end it on this i'm a huge sports fan to a fault i don't i don't watch as much as what's i used to sport? uh i i am wearing my denver bronco there denim jacket i'm a huge yeah. football fan and 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 diehard bronco fan even though i'm a bay area native and bronco fan john elway is my guy Okay. Um, I was gonna say how'd that happen? John Elway, John Elway man. Got it. Uh, there's there's a few of us. There's a few of us brothers that love Elway. It should be a support group. <laughs> BLE. <laughs> I love it. BLE. <laughs> I'm part of BLE. <laughs> Got a little um, handshake. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah, John John D. Rocky says, Let's ride. T I R country. Let's ride. Um, um, so I joke with another commentator in this world who we have a fantasy football league in for this is revolution and she's she works on a show called the majority report and has her own sports show and uh and she's a football fan and and actually has, has pretty decent analysis but she you know in my opinion falls under the trope of a lot of uh sports reporting that becomes kind of flippant um oh this guy sucks because they're short 
or this guy yeah. sucks because they can't throw the deep ball or this guy sucks because of X, Y, and Z. And I'm like, mm. when you get to the NFL level, saying so-and-so sucks because of something like that kind of sounds like sports talk talk that just fills the air because there's really nothing to discuss on that day. Mm. And the knock was on Tua. I can't uh, mm. forget his name. Tua the Hawaiian that went to Alabama. And so I jokingly made a comment on Twitter and I was like, you know, two or through six touchdowns. There's only two quarterbacks in the Miami Dolphins history to throw six touchdowns in the game. And that's Dan Marino and Bob Greasy. And right? two and, to, and now Tua. And he did it in a come-from-behind win, and the last touchdown won the game. Like, wow. It gets no more, you know, Rudy storybook NFL than this, right? Mm-hmm. This is the sports moment where you, you want your kid to live this out. When you're a little kid goofing around with your friends on the street, this is that moment, right? He has it in real time. and. Yeah. Yes. The knock on the knock on Tua was that he's short. He's about six feet, and he doesn't he doesn't have a rocket arm. But what is a rocket arm? There's a laundry list of guys that could throw the ball out of the stadium that couldn't hit, you know, the brown side of a barn. Um, Kyle Bowler comes to mind, um, who had uh, fascinating uh, uh, draft tape throwing balls off of his knees 60 yards, um, which at the NFL level isn't as difficult as one thinks, right? Yeah. We're talking the NFL level. And Kyle Bowler had severe accuracy problems, and it became a big knock on his NFL career. So even though he's a first-round draft pick kind of based on hype, he doesn't pan out. And there's a myriad of reasons, reasons why people don't pan out. But Tua finally has a system that works and players that fit within said system. And he did what you want your first round draft pick to do. Yeah. He delivered the ball. Um, they weren't horrible passes. They, people weren't overthrown, which is something you have to think about when you have burners as wide receivers. If you have Tyreek Hill, he's got Tyreek Hill. Yeah. And, and Jalen Waddle, two burners. And Waddle. I'm bugging. Right, there's two burners. You run the risk of constantly overthrowing them, which was one of the knocks on Patrick Mahomes, mm. because he would overthrow Tyreek Hill. Mm. Two was hitting him in the bucket. Maybe he has to slow down a step, but again, it's Tyreek Hill. Tyreek Hill slowing down a little bit is okay <laughs> when he's 20 yards behind the defender. Tyreek is a monster, man. I played corner, and I, I would not want to be anywhere near him. Or <laughs> like, I played, I played, I played zone corner, zone safety. I came up, played a little, little linebacker, you know, kind of a tweener. But to cover someone like him, insane. But anyway, with Tua though, yeah. I mean, there's intangibles, you know. There's just there's, there's mm-hmm. something called intangibles, and they show up. And I, I think one of the greatest jobs. That I used to want to do is to like be in the like uh, what is it? Not a recruiter, a scout, an NFL scout. scout. Oh yeah, yo, bruh, bruh. What? I mean, bruh. That's all I wanted to be. 
right? That's all I want to be. Seems insane. Seems like an insane job. But also, like, they get it wrong all the time. You know what I mean? Like this, you know, this. You gotta let them play, and you gotta see how things pan out. And there's too many factors. Yes, and and so, I made it. It's all jokes, you know. Again, I I respect this person's opinion. We don't have to always agree. I think they are legitimate sports mind. I think when they yeah. talk, comment on sports, they need to be taken seriously. And I would never say anything to to uh, disrespect them or belittle their sports opinion. Mm-hmm. I just, it was a joke, if anything. <laughs> But because they're a large Twitter personality, I effed up by not DMing that person, which I should have done. Mm-hmm. And I put it up. Wait, what was and, the joke? Well, I was just like, well, you know, I think you were wrong about Tua as he throws this next touchdown pass. Gotcha. And so uh, someone had responded like, oh, well, Tua, what do they say? You mean the pass that Tyreek had to slow down for? Tua is too short, basically. They're like, Tua is too, no, he doesn't have the arm strength. I was like, well, what does arm strength mean? Because that's someone commented about Jeff George. Jeff George had all the arm strength in the world. And one of the knocks on a young quarterback is knowing when to pull off velocity for certain passes. I'm a John Elway fan. The knock on him in his first five years was too much velocity on passes. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you need to pull it off. If you can't throw a screen because you're breaking fingers, you're a problem. Your strong right. arm is a problem. Right. So, um, and uh, Peyton Manning fan because he's played for the Broncos. After when Peyton Manning comes to the Broncos, he has that crazy neck fusion surgery. His velocity is gone, and it's all ball placement. It's he had it, and he had great ball placement considering he couldn't throw a spiral anymore, and he had great anticipation. Um, you know, all this, it, it's a, it's a, it's a, it all has to synthesize with coaching, you know, practice, trust in, in the system, trust in the player, you know, to do all these things. It's not as simple as this guy can't throw with velocity or this guy can't throw the deep ball because two or through for 450 yards and six touchdowns. Right. And some of those were deep balls. Right. Um, so there's something to be said about, he got it done at a high level against a very good team with a very against the Baltimore Ravens. Um, so what does arm strength have to do with it? Then the person's like, well, he's short. At the same time this person is saying this, Kyler Murray, who was five foot nine, first overall pick in two Love sports. Kyler Love Kyler Murray. In two yeah. sports, right? In in baseball by the Oakland A's. Right. In and with the Arizona Cardinals, and he's a Heisman Trophy winner. Yeah. And he comes from a football family where his father um, was kind of shut out of football because of, you know, but they just were, you Negroes aren't playing quarterback just yet. And okay. and his dad didn't want to go to Canada. So his dad becomes one of those like almost Marinovich like coaches. So Kyler Murray is football personified. This kid is really, really smart. He's extremely athletic. Yeah. And, you know, he didn't score the final point to win the game in overtime, but he made that play to send that game into overtime when they were down 23-7. This five foot nine quarterback, Fran Tarkenton's about the same size. For decades, he had the all-time NFL passing yardage mark. He went to, I think, three Super Bowls. I think Joe Cap went to one with the Vikings. So, height is extremely relative. You know, in the modern game, Drew Brees is not very tall. Joe Montana was not very tall and didn't have the strongest arm. 
And this person tried to come back and say, well, Joe Montana had Jerry Rice's whole career. He did not. He didn't have Jerry Rice for the first six years of his career. Uh, and he won two Super Bowls before Jerry Rice. So is it height? Is it coaching? Is it arm strength? Or is it that you get so addicted to hearing these guys be you know, real rude about their analysis of players? Mm. Um, and then you pick up that same rude, you know, flippant, dismissive analysis because you don't know how to make your own. I don't have the benefit. I live in Mexico, Billy. Mm. The game is on in the in the in the room in the living room. It's all in Spanish. I can't hear anything they're saying. Good. I can hear it, and my understanding is like this. Mm. All I know is penalty castigo. <laughs> That's all I know, right? So, I'm back to what it was when I was a little kid, and I would just watch games, record games, and rewatch them. Yeah. And just break it down and analyze it. I mean, I'm a, I was a nerd like that to that level. Yeah. That's you know? that's gonna that's gonna have some good training. So you're gonna be creating. <laughs> but but, sure, but it's my but it's my opinion, right? You know, it's it's you my opinion, and and the same way we need to look at news is exactly. There's a story that. there, right? <laughs> you I, love know? I love that. Shannon Sharp said a similar thing. He was saying about how he doesn't, he watches it on mute because he doesn't want to be corrupted by whatever the people are saying. But I want to say, like, so that's interesting to me. What's also interesting is, um, or, uh, oh, yeah, it is the same thing. Like, with the news, with watching a football game, I've been playing with the idea conceptually that everything is one thing, okay? Mm -hmm. A deep, like philosophically, everything is one thing. And in order to appreciate it, we have to do this thing. So there's something where we have to separate it out. So this this attempt to this attempt to very scientifically describe the attributes of the best quarterback is another weird journalistic kind of mm -hmm. trope that isn't real, you know? It's um and like you're saying, it's a borrowed thing potentially because yeah. these are the terms that ESPN talks about. Oh, the ideal height, whatever. But Kyler Murray shows you that 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 doesn't matter much at all. And you know, uh, Warren Moon showed you about and and, and uh, oh. showed you about running. You know, we're just going back. Like mm -hmm. all the all the assumptions about what quarterbacks should be doing were were thrown away with Randall Cunningham and guys like this into Michael Vick. And so we're always we're always trying to create stories, you know, and that, yeah. it's funny that, that that brings us back to that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and people have to remember there's one credit that no one pays attention to when a football, the credits roll and that's mm. writer mm. and that's storyboard. Mm -hmm. Don't ever think that those are natural pivots. Right. When you have, for example, Remember Terrell Owens and Donovan McNabb? Mm -hmm. The beef? You, you think players don't? You played football at a college level? Do quarterbacks and receivers fight? Do coaches and players fight? That happens on every sideline. Yeah, 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 exactly. It's, this is pre-game. We're going to get a reaction shot for this thing. When Peyton Manning is sitting down with the, or Tom Brady rather is sitting down with the thing and he's, 
he's a fiery competitor. We're going to get a rematch. Right, exactly. He's going to do this thing. And when he does the thing, we're going to get him. And we're going to, this is the story that we have for this. And this. And if this happens, this is the story. Why do people think that's not how it works, even on a sports level? But that goes back to the conception of what reality is. You're hitting the nail exactly right, because that's exactly right. Tom Brady, they want the story of this guy who just won't quit. He's a genius. He won't quit. He's older and, and just still cracking. And when they when they take a shot of him walking across the field pregame, whatever, it always comes back to that. That is the pre-existing frame that will always um, – you know, it guides whatever narrative is being built. And if you have a player – like a Terrell Owens who has a little bit of a, you know, he talks a little bit much. The media has a different relationship with him. Mm-hmm. You're going to get different errors. They're going to take the same walking shot and fill it and, and, and imbue it with a different perspective. And that's the thing. Um, it's weird. It's uh, uh, Cam Newton. Cam Newton. Interception with the towel over his head. They don't He's like just not that. a team player. Yeah, exactly. He's just not a team player. And that, that narrative can in, actually infect um, owners' boxes more than people think, mm-hmm. yeah. um, because it becomes the dominant narrative. Because as much as we live in a 24-hour news cycle for politicos, there's a 24-hour news cycle for everything. Yeah, everything. That's why social media is so filled with emotional comments, because we exist in a news cycle that's telling us these things 24 hours. And we're just taking it in and we're taking it in sometimes um, almost through like some osmosis because you're driving, and you're trying not to crash, but you're hearing this and then you're getting mad. And yes. Maybe your team lost. God forbid your team lost or right. God for, and, and your team could also be Democrat, Republican, <laughs> progressive That's congressman. Exactly. <laughs> That's why and the, the team thing gets too crazy in the politics thing because that, that really is it. Underlying – People, just like you know, if you're a fan of a team and you're watching the game, it doesn't matter if your player actually did commit a uh, pass interference. You know, you're like, no, no pass interference. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think it's important to like get off these labels, man. Like the, the labels, whether it's Republican, Democrat, whether it's left, right, even. I, 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 to me, the challenge is to get further and talk with some specificity because if not, we're just we're just cheering for stuff <laughs> rather than actually looking at what stuff is and on that note as we've gone an hour and a half i want to say billy thank you uh wherever you guys are watching or listening to this show um there are links in the description to billy's work uh i am looking forward to doing more work with billy um yes we're gonna do it bro this uh, is a great chat thanks for having me man no 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 this was this was a fun conversation i hope you guys enjoyed it um no matter where you're listening to the show, be it on YouTube or the audio podcast, please leave a comment. Tell tell us what you think. Tell us your opinion. Am I wrong about Tua? <laughs> Am I wrong about Kyler Murray? Am I wrong about systems? Will the Broncos go all the way with Russell Wilson? I don't know. He's also short. <laughs> he's we didn't even mention him. That's funny. He's also he's also short. He's also got a Super Bowl ring. You know, what is short? Is it under 6'5"? I don't know. Let me know what you think it is. We coming for you, nigga. (gasps) That's how I feel every time I do this show.
<laughs> I love that. Thank, thank you guys that. again for checking us out. And I am.